Welcome to Behind the Books, a podcast by the Mercer County Library System. Your hosts are Bob Noose and Anna Vanskoyk. Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Behind the Books. This episode, we have Dennis Beebe, who works as a reference librarian at the West Windsor Branch. And our author guest is Dana O'Neill, who covers college basketball for The Athletic and has written a couple of books, including one about the Big East. And as we get toward the end of February, Anna, we thought Dana would be a great person to talk to. We had our interview proper with Dana, but then you and I were online with her for quite a while afterwards, kind of talking about college basketball and kind of the direction that the conferences have gone and all that kind of good stuff, um, which was so much fun. And, but I, I'm excited to share our interview that we had with her on talking about her writing and talking about her pursuing the books that she has written. And then it's kind of funny because even talking to Dennis, there was a lot that, I mean, we, we did our interview proper with him, but then we started talking about all these other things like pets and um, he has a pet turtle, Madeline, who is just this amazing, amazing pet that he has in his house. And that's one of the things I love about this is just kind of all these different dimensions to these people, whether they're authors or our staff members. Sometimes I wonder if we should take the, we should have like a behind behind the books segment where we only talk about, we only let the listeners hear the things that we talk about that aren't actually on the podcast. Well, um, we'll do a documentary someday. That'll be a goal of ours. Being the end of February, we are just a couple of weeks away from March Madness, college basketball's big event. And we'll talk to Dana a little bit about that uh, later on. She, she's covered the final four for a couple of decades, and she does. she's probably one of the top experts in the country on college basketball. So it was great to have her. And as you said, we talked to Dennis about his work, not just his turtle. And we'll be back to talk to Dennis Beebe in a moment. Welcome to this portion of Behind the Books, where we take the time to interview a staff member from the Mercer County Library System. Today, we have the great pleasure to talk with Dennis Beebe, who is a reference librarian from our West Windsor branch. Dennis, can you tell us a little bit about what you do at the West Windsor branch? Well, primarily I'm a reference librarian, which involves answering patron questions, helping them with computer issues, that sort of thing. Um, I also work on adult programs. So if someone's interested in hosting something, get them set up with, with the room, reservations, that sort of thing. And I'm also kind of like a cataloging liaison as well. So if we need uh, something needs to have its call number changed or we're doing deletions, I kind of get those things. I, I spent some time in the cataloging department when I was back at Lawrence. So I kind of split my time half in Lawrence, half in reference and half in, in ACAT, as we call it, acquisitions and catalog, being the backup cataloger. Well, I was probably one of the few people who actually enjoyed the cataloging class when I was going through my MLS. So. I loved cataloging. <laughs> Here's this object, and you can put so many different subjects to it, but where ultimately, so as a physical object, it needs to go someplace. So just, you know, finding everything needs to go in its place, and it's nice to find where you think that particular place should be for something. 
So you've been around for a while in in reference too. And one of the things I was kind of curious about is how have you seen, like over the last several years or however long you've been doing it, just kind of what you have to do at reference and kind of the questions that you get. Has it changed a lot over the last several years? Yeah, and we have so many re- different electronic resources through the library system, and so when we actually have to pull something out from, like, say, like look some uh, a stock up on Value Line, for example, uh, it's uh, it can be a little bit of a, a chore as you remember, like, wait, how do I find this information? Uh, like, I did have somebody looking up one, it's an investment, not advice, but information on certain companies and stuff the other day, and now took me a while, but we were both very patient and she was happy with what we were able to pull up. I think people always appreciate when you're trying, as long as you're there, you know, you're trying and they see that. I, I find that people are always very appreciative of that. It's there's They come in not knowing where to find an answer. And then even if you can't find it out immediately, the, the fact of your, the response will be, well, I'm not sure. Let's take a look. Let's check this out. And you, you can both like if they actually bring their tablet in, we can look it up together and, and see. Oh yeah, well here, if you go to this part of our website, this is where you could find this. Let's go look at it now. That sort of thing. I would think that that's kind of a fun as- aspect of the job too, right? Somebody comes in and they have a question, and you're as curious to find the answer as as they are to get the answer. Yeah, and unfortunately, it doesn't happen very often. It's at least not in, again, not in, in West Windsor. It's it's back at uh, Lawrence again. You would have a lot more of that sort of interaction with the patron, whereas it's very it's much more quiet at West as yeah. compared to Lawrence. Except when the kids all come in to do their uh, get their tutoring in the evenings, and then it's quite a din. But West is busy. I mean, I used to stop into that branch. Um, my son, my older son would have swim over in, in uh, the West Windsor part of the county. And I would go in there at night and I could not believe how many people are in there. I mean, there's study groups, there's reading going on. I mean, it was pretty, I was pretty impressed with how crazy it not, It wasn't crazy. It was, it was very, it was quiet, but there was a lot of people there. It reminded me of when uh, a few years ago, my wife and I took a train ride to uh, Washington, D.C., and we were in the quiet car. And the conductor comes over the announcement and he said to everyone, this is the quiet car. Do not use your phones. Picture that you're in a library and you be quiet as that. And my wife and I looked at each other and started laughing. It's like, well, I don't know what library you're in where it's still that quiet, but it's when you bring a whole bunch of kids in and they're all working. I mean, it's, they're not like they're all goofing off, but it's like, no, there's no shushing anybody. You know? Well, oh, now, did you go to school thinking you wanted to be a librarian? I kind of like fell all into it. And like I went to, for undergrad, I was a history major. And when I got out of undergrad, I ended up working for bookstores and Borders was the last one. And as Borders was actually starting to go downhill, someone gave me a heads up that the library was actually looking for people. And I had taken the GRE for the libraries for an MLS shortly after I graduated, just see why not. Didn't do well enough and said, oh, well, so much for that. I went back into it and 
and here I am. It's like, and that was like 2008 or so. So. So we've talked a little bit about how it's a it's a hub of activity. Is there something else that you can think about where when people talk about working in a library and they have these preconceived notions, what it would be like? Is there another um, something you think people would be surprised about? I think the, the breadth of materials. I think when any when you typically think of library, you think of shelves upon shelves upon shelves of books. And that's truly that still is the case. But. We, there's CDs, there's DVDs, there were, there was VHS and audio cassettes back in the day. And now there's an increasing amount of uh, digital content, like two different electronic platforms, Hoopla and, and Libby. And the other stuff, the DVDs still circulate, but then there's also the whole streaming thing too. So I mean, there's, there's never a, a the, the amount of materials just keeps increasing. And it's interesting to see the change in the physical materials too, like how I would imagine that the fiction, the mystery, those kind of things, those have pretty much all stayed about the same as far as quantities go. But nonfiction shifts around a lot and and as far as reference goes, like I'm one of our coworkers, uh, Anne recently retired, and she started back in I think seventy nine. And she had related how they would get phone calls back then. And you had to like look all this stuff up in which volume is, is this kind of, can you answer this question with? And now there's, it's more of you're at the keyboard and trying to figure out what digital resource would I answer this with? Yeah, you're still answering. You still have this. The, like, I think breadth is a great, just a great way to explain it, because those those masses of information are still there, but it's and it's still kind of identifying. Well, what's going to be my best strategy here to find this this answer? Because yeah. even though it's not in a book, it's in some other resource that we have. It's a lot easier to find too. I can imagine like having to remember like which encyclopedia or which like local history volume may have such and such obscure question where these yeah. days you can <laughs> google it but it, then there's a matter of information literacy and knowing the, that the resource that you're pulling up is a reliable one and it's not full of random stories like well this is something that uh, my great aunt Gertrude had said was the answer to such and such and no this is an actual legit like this is a government resource this is you know like the I'm so glad. I'm so glad you brought that up because I do think that's somewhere where I've seen a shift is I feel like it's more evaluating where we're finding the information and where our patrons are finding the information because they might come in with some random tidbit and it's like, well, let's let's find out this from a credible, you know, valid resource and to kind of back up what you're finding. Yes, well, we've been talking with Dennis Beebe, who is a reference librarian at the West Windsor branch. Dennis, thank you so much for taking time to talk with us today. It was great fun. Great. Like, thanks a lot. It's been, it's been fun to be here. Welcome back, everyone, to the next segment of Behind the Books, where we talk about some of the events that are going to be coming up at the library in the next couple of weeks. Thank you so much to Dennis Beebe for taking the time to talk to us about 
his time over at the West Windsor branch and his road to the library. And Anna, in terms of things coming up, we have a system-wide event going on right now about the Oscars. And now I'll have to tell you that I know I haven't seen any of the movies on the Oscars list. I don't know if I've seen a new movie in six or seven years. It seems like it's pretty interesting, especially because I know there's a lot of people at the, who come in the library, check out the DVDs, are very interested in movies. So it seems like a nice thing for people to get a chance to do. You can go to any of the branches and fill out your card on who you think is going to win um, the categories that we've selected. And then the winners are going to be tabulated. And if there's a tie, we'll do a raffle. And the winner gets a $25 gift card to Barnes & Noble, which is courtesy of the Friends of the Hickory Corner Branch. They have sponsored the program this year. Bob, we should also remind our listeners that the deadline is coming up for our 14th annual Trashed Art Contest. And this is the time of the year where we invite our patrons to take items that they would normally recycle or throw into the trash and to make something into a piece of art. And those submissions can be dropped off at our Lawrence headquarters branch anytime between Wednesday, March 1st and Wednesday, March 8th. And I will link to more specifics in our show notes so that people can look at that to reference any other information that they may need about submitting entries into our 14th annual Trashed Art Contest. But in addition to that, we also have some nice programs coming up as we hit the tail end of February and, and beginning of March as well. It is Black History Month, uh, of course. So we take this month to really highlight uh, those accomplishments in the history of uh, Black Americans. And one of the things I like about the programs we do at the library is they will have a national or a global focus sometimes. But the one that we have coming up on Wednesday, February 22nd, at seven in the evening really has a local focus. And that's gonna be East Windsor's African-American West Airport Road community. And that's going to be presented by Charles Stoltz, who is the president of the Heightstown East Windsor Historical Society. So that's one of the things I do enjoy about those programs that we do bring is they really do bring a local flavor to uh, how our part has played in history. February is also Heart Health Month, so we do try to offer programs kind of focused on the health of our hearts. And on Thursday, February 23rd, this is at one in the afternoon. This is another virtual program where you would have to register to get the link. Uh, we are having a program called the DASH or the Mediterranean Diet, which one is better? So the Mediterranean Diet is pretty popular and DASH stands for Dietary Approaches to stop hypertension. This is going to be presented by Dr. Karen Ensel, the family and consumer health sciences educator and head for Rutgers Cooperative Extension of Union County. So that's something that you might wanna take advantage of. And again, that's on February 23rd at one in the afternoon. And the two programs I've talked about are virtual programs. So you do have to register to get the link and you can either go to our website, mcl.org, or you can go onto our app, MyMCLSNJ, to register. Once again, some excellent programs. And also, everyone should remember that the local branches will have quite a bit going on themselves. Make sure to check out the event calendar or stop in at your local branch and check and see what's going on for Black History Month, as well as everything else that goes on in February. And the next thing that we have coming up for you is our chat with Dana O'Neill. We'll be back with Dana in a moment. 
Dana O'Neill, a senior writer at The Atlantic, has been a sports writer and national basketball reporter for more than three decades, covering 18 Final Fours. She covered her first Big East game in 1990 and has been a regular courtside ever since. She is the author of titles such as Long Shots, Jay Wright, Villanova, and College Basketball's Most Unlikely Champion, as well as the Big East, inside the most entertaining and influential conference in college basketball history. Dana, thank you so much for taking time to uh, join us today. Thank you guys for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm looking forward to the conversation. So one of the first questions that comes to mind for me is here you are this reporter and then you take on the idea of a book, which is massive. So what was it for you um, to take on these topics? Yeah, I, I, you know what, the, the first book that I wrote about Villanova, after Villanova won the national championship, it was chaos. Like I literally was on the court at the final four after Chris Jenkins shot trying to gather stuff. And a friend of mine grabbed me, he's like, you should write a book. I was like, dude, I, I can't even write a game story at this point, but okay, I'll write a book. And then like, after I kind of decompressed, I thought that is my book. I covered Villanova since the day Jay got hired. And if somebody else writes it and I go to Barnes and Noble, I'll be mad. So I kind of just took that one off on my own. And it was, it wasn't easy. No book writing is easy, but because I kind of lived it, I had sort of the knowledge and, and who to talk to. The second one on the Big East was really weird. I had written a, a story for The Athletic about um, inside sort of like the coaches meeting at the old Big East and how funny they were and crazy. And an agent, a book agent from DC, who was a Georgetown graduate, hit me up on, on Twitter and said, I've been looking for someone to write a book about the Big East. And I think you could do it. And my first reaction was like, nobody has, like, are you crazy? Like, I could not believe that someone did. So that was I said, that was my more grown up book. That was the one you went to, you did a proposal, you shopped it around to book publishers in New York, the whole gamut, right? And then Random House bet, bit, and we went through all of that. And it was a lot of fun. I mean, I did it during the pandemic, which stunk in that I couldn't go talk to people in person, but it was great because I had something to do. And, you know, kind of going down memory lane. And because that store, that conference has such a a place in people's heart. Nobody was like, oh, I don't want to talk about that. Everyone was like, oh, please, let's tell stories. So the writing of it was laborious because it just, that just is a hard process, but the story was just so much fun to tell. Well, it's, I was just to follow up. I was, we were talking before we started recording and, you know, I was, big, I'm more big 10 and ACC, but I think that even if you're not like a huge, like follower of the big East, I mean, if you love college basketball, you love college basketball. And one of my, one of the quotes I found um, describing the big East, I think it was Jim Calhoun, um, the former UConn coach. He says it was Camelot, Camelot with bad language. <laughs> Yeah, it was, it was like the greatest quote ever. I mean, like, you know how sometimes someone says something, you're like, oh my God, I can't wait to use that. That was that was that moment. And, and he's so right. It was like this idyllic kind of group of teams that came together because there was an absence of a league in the Northeast where all this great basketball was being played. And because they were new, everyone was sort of rooting for one another, although behind the scenes, they're trying to kill one another. And it just came at the perfect, just dumb luck timing. Like, these great personality of coaches who were kind of just getting started, Jim Beheim and John Thompson and Roly Massimino and Lou Carnesecca, these crazy personalities. At the same time, this crew of great athletes and Patrick Ewing and Pearl Washington and Chris Mullen are kind of coming into their own at the same time that ESPN is being born. It was like a perfect storm that, I, I mean, they got dumb lucky in a lot of ways. They really did, just in timing. And so, yeah, I mean, it, it just kind of is relative to sort of that that beginning of, of when college basketball sort of became this national concept, really. 
Well, and it really was, as you said, everything coming together at just the right time because that was when ESPN was really taking off, right? They had the big Monday where they you always had the big, big East game. And then you had the year 1985, three teams make it to the final four. So you had high quality, you had the personalities, you really had everything it took to really watch that take off. It's unbelievable now to think back, you know, in retrospect that nothing was there prior to, right? Because those schools were all pretty good and Northeast basketball was pretty good. But at the time they were in this kind of big, gigantic, messy, EC, AC, and everyone was playing these regional games that included like what we would now call mid-majors, even low majors, and nobody wanted to organize it. And, you know, without Dave Gavitt, who was the commissioner and the founder of it, it probably, I don't know what would have happened, but he had this idea that like, wait a minute, like these schools are really good. There's huge interest. Some of the best players in the country are in the Northeast and they're leaving for the ACC because there's no place to go home. That's got that sort of reputation. Why, why don't we just take charge of this? And yeah, so that and the, the, the timing of ESPN being like, oh, hi, we have this great idea to do 24 hours of sports and no content. Um, it was like, okay, well, we'll give you content and you give us a place to be on television. And I don't think either at the time could envision what it all became. Well, and I, I guess one of the things I'd also like to talk about is, I mean, you you were with ESPN and now you write for The Athletic. And I think something that, um, I think librarians and journalists have a lot in common, like it's the whole information and credibility and validity. And it's a landscape that's changed so much. The Athletic is like a whole kind of new ball of wax. And yeah. can you tell me, tell us a little bit about how you got started there and kind of the the genesis of that project? Yeah, well, I have to tell you, my mother, um, she was many things in her career for a while. She was a librarian and an English teacher. So I come by the journalism library thing, librarian thing. No, for real. Like, that's part of why I do what I do. It's a love for words and, and books and knowledge and information. So I totally get that. Yeah. So, I mean, short story is I got laid off of the at ESPN at the same time that The Athletic was being born. And so I feel like I was a I don't know. Lucky is a weird way to say that you get laid off and you're lucky, but I was because it was forming and they needed, they had this great vision. And honestly, I remember when um, Alex Mather, who's one of our founders called me um, to talk about the job and he's laying out this idea of long form journalism and really good storytelling and all these things that mean so much to me that frankly ESPN had gotten away from at the time ESPN was sort of kind of, I used to say like they were trying to figure out who they wanted to be when they grew up. Like they pivoted all the time, lists and videos and no videos and no lists. And then long form is like, wah. And nobody reads. That's what they kept telling us. Nobody wants to read. They, nobody. That's what they kept telling us. Like write short. Nobody wants to read long. So when Alex called me, I remember I said to my husband, I was like, I think I just talked to my, my journalistic fairy godfather, like if he's real. Um, and I was, you know, okay, it's a, it's a startup. I have no idea, but they have stayed true to that mission. Um, we've been, you know, purchased by the New York Times. That hasn't changed who we are. They believe in storytelling. They, you know, granted, there's a place for news and there's a place for all that the consumable fun content. We do all that stuff too. They believe in going and taking your time and writing a good story. So don't just fly in like I'm going to a basketball game this weekend between Texas and Tennessee. Right. I'm gonna cover a Texas, Tennessee basketball game, but while I'm there. Go get me a deeper story on what Tennessee is doing right with defense. Go get me a deeper story on what Texas has done to survive their coach getting fired midseason because of an assault charge. I mean, good stories. And, and the great news is people do read. ESPN was dead wrong. People absolutely do read. Thank God. Ann and I are both college basketball first when it comes to sports. And 
if you look at the landscape of sports, kind of like the landscape of journalism, the way things have changed, everything's driven by football. I mean, how, what's kind of your thought on all that? And I guess circle it around to the current Big East, which is kind of the last bastion, one of the last bastions of no football interference. Yeah, yeah it's been, um, it's kind of like watching journalism. <laughs> it's been sometimes difficult. I mean, I'm I'm still a Luddite that gets a newspaper in my driveway seven days a week. Like I read the New York Times every day. And I always, like, I say this leading to the basketball thing, but I always say about newspapers, what I miss about reading a newspaper, if you don't have it, is you find stories that you didn't know you wanted to read. Whereas when you go on the internet, you search for what you want, right? Like I remember reading a story in the New York Times about these women in a small town in Italy who were making pasta. I, I didn't know I wanted to read such a thing, but I read it, right? Um, that's newspapers. And, and basketball too. I mean, we've been sort of siphoned off because of the money in football um, driving everything in college athletics. But, you know, nothing replaces March Madness. Um, and so there's still that passion for March Madness. But it's been frustrating because a lot of the things that made college basketball special have been killed by basketball, mostly the traditional rivalries. Um, you know, Kansas, Missouri is a great example. You know, Maryland and Duke, uh, Syracuse and Villanova, Syracuse and Georgetown. Like I could go on and on about all these great rivalries that like don't exist anymore. Um, because somebody in, in the conference office decided to make all the money by foot with football. And you can't argue it because it does make all of the money, but it's it's still frustrating to watch. Um, and, you know, the Big East is funny because the Big East was both killed by conference alignment and kind of saved by it. It was killed because it had grown to like 16 teams and it was like this mishmash of football playing schools and basketball playing schools in South Florida, like what in the world is South Florida doing in the Big East? And they couldn't work. And so when conference realignment came, everyone started plucking the, the football schools, Syracuse and Boston College and Pitt among the, the most painful ones, especially Syracuse to see go. And so at one point the Catholic schools got together and basically stopped, like we're done, we're done here. We're, we're, we are done, like we are basketball schools. We're gonna just worry about us. And in retrospect, it's made the league better. It doesn't have the name brand panache and it's not going to, it's just different, but it's stronger because it knows who it is. Like there's no complication in the Big East. We know what our priority is. And I think it's made the league pretty darn good. Um, so I give them a ton of credit for having the courage to do it in the time when everybody was like, oh, you can't live without football. A bunch of basketball playing schools said, oh, watch us. And they have. And really, like, you know, some schools have been hurt from conference. Real Syracuse is not Syracuse anymore. Pitt's getting better. But, you know, it, it's not it's not the same. A lot of the schools that tried conference realignment for basketball purposes have not succeeded. So you're writing for The Athletic, and I'm going to, and I don't know if you're at liberty to talk about this at all, but is there any other big projects that you're planning on working on? Yeah, sure. I mean, we always have something in the works. Um, we are doing like something kind of in line with what we're talking about, a big February thing on the future of college basketball. And we're looking at it from a million different directions, everything from the transfer portal and how it affects high school recruiting to who are going to be the movers and shakers in the next 20 years when all these coaches um, retire and move on? How does NIL impact college basketball? So that's like, we always are trying to find like projecty kind of things that, that people dig into that kind of go beyond the scope of the games in front of you. So that's kind of on the radar right now. Um, you know, I'm, I'm looking at, uh, it's been like doing my math, right? 
40 years, right? Jim Valvano's big moment with NC State. So kind of like a what's NC State now? What happened? Where is it? So we always are looking at all these kind of cool ideas. That's the one neat thing about our staff. Like you just get a bunch of people in a room and they start throwing things around like, oh my God, that's a great idea. So it's it's a really fun place to work in that regard. What might be nice is if we could get you guys together to kind of fix college sports. I right? say that all the time, man. Like just give us, give a bunch, give 10 reporters. We'll fix this stuff. <laughs> Before we let you go, we had a couple of just, you know, quick things of as somebody who's covered college basketball for so long. Okay. So of all the places you've gone, what's been your favorite venue to cover a game in? Well, it still remains a palestra. <laughs> Un unbeatable as far as, I mean, look, I've been to Cameron for the Duke Carolina game. I've been to Kansas. I've been to a lot of great places, but nothing's better when the palestra gets, as Jack Shore, the God bless him, the AP report, uh, reporter who covered Philadelphia sports forever called it, when the palestra gets corners and everybody's in the corners, no place better on earth. And nobody is going to ever argue that with me. <laughs> How about... Um... Over the years, I mean, you've, some, you've seen so many of the classic games. Do you have a favorite game of all the ones that you've covered? So, you know, me, I'm old. I was I was working at the Trentonian two years out of college. And I still don't know why they sent me, but I was at the um, Kentucky Carolina game for the for the Leitner shot. I'm still not quite sure why I had no business being there. So like I was so overwhelmed. That was ridiculous, of course. But, you know, I think time and place, the Chris Jenkins, again, like going back to all my my years of covering Villanova, it's a national championship game, right? I mean, and Villanova hits a buzzer beating three pointer to beat Carolina to win a national championship. It was like, that was just stupid. Um, yeah, that was that was probably the one. That was a great day for you and a not so great day for my co-host here. Yes, I'm sorry. Uh, you got yours the next year. You got yours the next year. It was all good. They got their they got their revenge. Well, we've been talking with Dana O'Neill, a senior writer at The Athletic, as well as an author. Her most recent book was The Big East, Inside the Most Entertaining and Influential Conference in College Basketball History. Dana, it has been so much fun talking to you and educational to boot. We wish you nothing <laughs> but continued success. Thank you guys for having me. I really appreciate it. It was fun to go down memory lane. Welcome back, everyone, as we wrap up this episode of Behind the Books. Thanks so much to Dana O'Neill for taking the time to talk to us. Uh, and I really enjoyed getting to talk to her about how she got started, uh, the myriad of sports that she's covered, and now she's pretty much specializes in basketball. But she also writes about other things and encourage people to check out the Big East book that we have here at the Mercer County Library. It's If you're a college basketball fan, it's something that would be very interesting, just the whole way the league came about and some of the characters and she talked about it a little bit it was just kind of an interesting read yeah I admitted to her that I was more of a big 10 ACC I mean that's where I lived that's so those were the teams that I knew I did not know a lot about the Big East so through that conversation with her and me taking a look through the book um, it is a book that I do want to read I just think the history of the conference, the part it played and kind of where college basketball has evolved. Um, I think it'll be an educational read as well as entertaining. And we talked about this a little bit with her too, but just the whole concept of now it's sometimes hard to figure out who's where, right? Because her book was the Big East and, and back then the big teams were teams like Syracuse, which is now in the ACC or Boston College, which is now in the ACC. So it's hard to keep track sometimes. You and I joke about it some, but 
sadly, it's the way things are these days. I know. We're trying to keep up. And she even said she has a hard time keeping up with it all. And we talked to her a little bit about how in a couple of years when USC and UCLA joined the joined the uh, Big Ten, we're looking forward to that USC versus Illinois field hockey battle. But that's what's happened with college sports. So it's, it was an interesting conversation with her. And also Dennis Beebe, I enjoyed talking to him. Uh, we joked a little bit earlier about talking to him about his pets, which which was after we got done with the interview. But just like his journey to the library and how he uh, ended up at West Windsor was was an interesting story as well. Um, just with him being a fellow reference librarian, it was kind of interesting talking to him about uh, how reference has changed and the types of questions that we get, as well as just how our roles have really evolved over time. Well, Anna, we had two great conversations. We enjoyed talking to both Dennis and Dana. Hopefully our listeners enjoyed them as well. Hopefully talking to Dana gets people excited about March Madness, which will be starting in a few weeks. And we'll be back with another episode in a couple of weeks, which I know our listeners, as well as you and I, are very really looking forward to. Bob, I do want to thank you for scheduling Dana O'Neill, as well as a big thanks to Dana for taking time out of her very, very busy schedule to talk with us. And I have to give a big thank you to Dennis Beebe for taking time to talk with us because he kind of went above and beyond for us to interview him. So Dennis, thank you so much and for sharing your story with everybody. And Bob, I'll see you in two weeks. Thank you for listening to Behind the Books, a podcast by the Mercer County Library System. Don't forget to subscribe and please leave us a review. For more information about the Mercer County Library System, please visit us on the web at mcl.org. We are produced by Laura Narasik. Our thanks goes out to Kim Livingston for her technical expertise, as well as to Dana Benner for creating our cover art. Your hosts are Bob Noose and Anna Vanskoy.